City Church in Over the Rhine is cultivating the kind of family Jesus introduced to the world in the city of Cincinnati. We're glad you're choosing to listen to a sermon from our weekly service. We would love to meet you. Visit us on Instagram or at citychurchotr.com. Enjoy. Good morning. Like Rob said, my name is Chris, and um, we are in the middle of a series about living missionally. What's it look like to live missionally? What's it look like to live what we're calling it for the one? It comes out of Luke 15. I have so much to cover this morning and an average amount of time. So we're going to pretend that I just told a really engaging story where you're like, I wonder how this is going to tie into the point. And at the end of that story, I said something really funny. So I know I couldn't believe it happened either. Now that we've gotten that out of the way, here's where we're going. Um, If you're new here, uh, this is going to be maybe a little bit unfamiliar, but uh, if you've been here for a while, you know that we're going to read a bunch of scripture this morning. We're going to weave through the entire Bible. We're going to start in Luke, then we're going to go to Genesis. Genesis, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Malachi, John, Acts, Luke, Acts, and if you're good, at the end, I promise, I will read not one, but two passages from Revelation. Come on. Now, if you are newer... um, This sounds like a lot, and you're going to be like in the midst of Ezekiel wondering when brunch is, but I promise you, and everybody else knows, or at least they've heard me say it, relevance is coming, right? So on the count of three, relevance is is coming. Let's start in Luke 15. This is the basis of the series. Uh, Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? So we've called this series For the One because Jesus basically abandoned rational mathematical thinking. And he says, no, 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 I leave the 99. The good shepherd leaves the 99 to go after the one. And so the reason that we want to talk about living missionally or reaching out to the people in front of us is because Jesus did. Really, really simple. We want to live for the one because Jesus lived for the one. And we've said this every week, and we're going to continue to say it every week after this. We want to be like Jesus, right? That's why we're here. We want to be like Jesus. And Jesus lived for the one. Now, last week I talked about sharing the gospel as one of the first, the first of four practices. That today, I want to talk about something else that Jesus did very frequently. Jesus often operated in the power of the Holy Spirit. So we are going to follow one of the three main characters of the entire biblical story, the Holy Spirit, through the beginning all the way to the end, because he is on almost every page of your Bible Francis Chan wrote a book about it. He's called The Forgotten God because we sometimes forget that the Holy Spirit is the Godhead. And so we hear a lot about Jesus. We hear a lot about the Father. We're going to follow really quickly through the entire scripture uh, or the entire story of scripture so that we can then get to the end and say, okay, so here's how we want to operate in the power of the Holy Spirit. So first, Genesis 1. This is page 1 of your Bible. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering above the waters. This morning in morning prayer, uh, independent of me, Kayla led us through praying this verse about what it looks like for the Spirit of God to hover above the waters, and turns out that's what I'm also talking about this morning. The Spirit of God, page one of the Bible, is hovering above the waters. Now that sounds really peaceful and nice, but remember this is a true story, Genesis is true, And it is poetic. And so there's more going on here in like the ancient Mesopotamian literature. The waters or the sea 
are not just a literal water, it's often representative of chaos. And so what the writer of Genesis is saying is there was nothing at one point, but at some point, the Spirit of God was hovering above chaos. And if you keep reading through the next couple of chapters, you see that he begins to turn beautiful order from chaos. He begins to divide land and sea, day and night, That same spirit that's hovering above the waters starts off on page one and two and three by creating a beautiful order out of something that was chaotic. Now, we know that it doesn't last incredibly long before um, Adam and Eve and all of mankind rebel against God and fracture our relationship with them. And one of the blessings, it seems like a punishment, but it was actually a blessing of God to say, okay, now you've got to leave the garden. This is where the fullness of my presence is. And there's a tree here that if you eat it, you're going to live forever. And I don't want you to live forever in this fallen state. So I'm going to bring the tree back at some point. We've talked about this. So I'm going to send you out from the garden. And what's interesting is in Genesis 3.24, as he's doing that, it says, after he, God, drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden a cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So Adam and Eve are sent eastward. You're going to want to hold on to that. They are cast out of God's fullness of his presence towards the east, towards a place that does not have the fullness of God dwelling there, hoping, praying, longing to get back to the place that they started. Now as you read through Exodus and Leviticus and the rest of the Old Covenant, it gets darker. It doesn't get closer to resolution. And finally, there comes a point, uh, a few different characters or people or prophetic visions happen. One of them is uh, just tucked in the middle of Isaiah, where Isaiah, still in the midst of darkness, he gets a prophetic word. God speaks to him, through him, to the people. And this is what God says. He says, I, for I, will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. Notice the water metaphor that he's using here. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Now, even later on, Joel gets a similar word. And he says, there's coming a day I know that like water poured out in a desert or dry or dead place, the God of the universe is going to pour out his spirit on all flesh. So it's a prophetic word, but it's in the midst of darkness. And a little bit after this, it's not a prophetic word, but another very prophetic man named Ezekiel has a vision. So this isn't a word, this is a vision, where an angelic man starts to walk him through Jerusalem. And Ezekiel writes it down in Ezekiel 47. I'm sure that you guys were in this for your quiet time this week. Just in case you weren't, here it is. The man brought me back to the entrance of the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple towards the east, for the temple faces east. Well, that's interesting. Because we're starting to pick up on a theme that water is representative of the presence of God. Flowing water is the presence of God. The sea is chaos, but this flowing water is the spirit of God. And it's flowing east to the place that we were cast out towards, to the place that there is darkness, the place that is away from the presence of God. But Ezekiel has a vision and says, no, no, one day, though, there will be a river flowing from the heart, the seat of God, that's the temple, towards the east, bringing life to anyone that's in its way. And if you read the rest of this chapter, you see that Ezekiel gets into the river, and at the beginning, it's up to his ankles. And he goes further in, and then it's up to his knees, and then his waist, 
And then he says it became this river flowing from the temple towards the east became a river that no one could cross because it was so high. And then he, the angelic man with Ezekiel, says this water flows towards the eastern region and goes down to the Arabah, where it enters the Dead Sea. And when it empties into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be a large number of fish because this water flows and flows there and makes the salt water fresh. Catch this. So wherever the river flows, everything will live. Fruit trees of all kind will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve as food and their leaves for healing. Do you see what's happening here? The presence of God, this river that becomes a river that no man can cross, starts to flow eastward into the desert. And as it flows, it starts to bring life to lifeless places. The Dead Sea, 25% mineral. Nothing can live there. And as soon as this water touches that sea, life starts to teem. As soon as this river starts to flow in a desert, trees start to pop up on either side. And fruit starts to provide food in a barren land. And leaves start to be growing. And they don't wither. And they're for the healing of the nations. This is the story of the presence of God. And he's woven all throughout scripture. The spirit is flowing like water, bringing hope to dark places. Now, it's important to note that Ezekiel's not writing this at a time of revival. He's writing this to a people that are oppressed and in captivity. Things may have not been as dark as they were in that moment. Yet Ezekiel says, but I saw a vision. Of one day, the water, the presence of God, the spirit of God is going to be poured out, not on a prophet or two, not on Moses, on all flesh. And it will bring life to dead places. Because that is part of the job description of the spirit of God, to flow to the suffering and bring peace. To flow, through, uh, to, flow to the suffering and to bring comfort. That is the job description of the Holy Spirit. Now, we're not going to read it, but the last chapter of the Old Covenant is still just as dark. It's Malachi 4, and there's been talk of a new covenant, but it's certainly not here. And there's been talk of freedom, but it's certainly not here. And then uh, the, the present, the, the word of God goes dark for 400 years. And in that time, God's people are um, oppressed by a violent nation, the Greeks. And then they get free just long enough to be oppressed by a violent nation called the Romans. And it's that setting that, of course, Jesus steps onto the scene. And John records something really interesting that Jesus said uh, in the midst or at the beginning of a, of a teaching. John records in John 7, 37, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood up and in a loud voice said, now I'm going to pause right there, because what he's about to say is significant and it's important. But it's even more significant and more important if you understand what he's speaking to or when he's speaking to the people. It says, on the greatest and last day of the festival, that's the festival of tabernacles, or Sukkot. This is a time when all of the people, so many thousands of people would have flooded Jerusalem to celebrate one of the three biggest festivals that the Jews celebrated each year and continue to celebrate each year. And so during the festival of Sukkot, they would live in tents, they would dwell in tents in the city, reminding themselves and celebrating the way that at one point, they we're in captivity in the desert living in tents or tabernacles. 
That's the heartbeat of what Sukkot or Feast of Tabernacles was. But they also did something else in the time of Jesus. Every day, at the same time every day, they would gather at the temple. And they would have a couple of different rituals, one of which was a priest would take a big golden cistern and he would go down to the bottom of the temple mount and he'd go to the pool of Siloam and he would fill this big cistern with water. And then he would trudge all the way back up to the top of the temple mount, to the top of the temple steps. And all the people would gather and they'd be singing psalms of ascent, worshiping and asking God to bring his presence. And the priest would take the cistern and he would dump it out over the steps of the temple. And a small stream would start to flow down the temple steps. Which direction was it flowing? To the east. Because that's the direction the temple faced. And so every day for seven days, during the Feast of Tabernacles, this water would be poured out down one step, and then another, and another. And it looked something like a stream that was forming. And what they were doing is they were reenacting the vision that Ezekiel had. And they're begging God, they're asking God, God, you, you gave him this picture, would you do it here for us? Except on the seventh and the greatest day of the festival, some scholars say that, I know that they would circle the, the altar seven times, but a lot of scholars think they actually went and they got seven cisterns this time. And seven priests would carry them to the top. And there would be more worship. And there'd be screaming and wailing and lamenting and hoping and worshiping, saying, God, would you let this vision come true? And then the priest would pour all seven cisterns down the step, and this time it wasn't a stream. This time it looked something more like a river. And there was a moment in this where I imagined the people were worshiping and hoping. It's a moment of such joy and also of expectation. Saying, God, if you gave Isaiah the word, let it be true. If you gave Ezekiel the vision, let it be true. If your presence is going to be poured out on all flesh, let it happen now. And so the water flows down the steps in a river this time. And I imagine at some point near maybe the end of the last trickle of the water down the steps, as tears are maybe starting to form in the people's eyes as they're hoping and praying and worshiping, for the God of the universe to send his presence on them. I imagine that's about the point that it says at the last and most important day. Jesus stood up and John 7, 38 says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Jesus is so much more disruptive than we give him credit for. Just as the last trickle comes down the steps I imagine that's the moment that Jesus stands up at the temple and we've just worshipped and asked for God to do this and he says if anyone is thirsty let him come to me and drink because water will flow from them now at this point John makes this clear right after this he says but the spirit of God had not been given yet Jesus is saying something that was not fully true until Acts 2 when this water image comes back again and the language from Joel 2, it says that the Spirit of God was what? The Spirit of God was poured out like water. And in Acts, it happened on all flesh. And if you read throughout the early story of the church, it's one after another miracle happening through ordinary people. 
where ordinary people are carrying an extraordinary presence, an extraordinary spirit. Just one example is in Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas go to a place called Iconium, and it says in Acts 14 that they were speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. So preaching wasn't anything new. That was going on all throughout the Old Covenant. But this was new. That there were ordinary people starting to see extraordinary miracles happen around them. And it says that it enabled them to perform signs and wonders. But Luke makes sure that they know, that we know, that those signs and wonders just were confirming the message that was already preached. See, the kingdom of God was breaking in. And then the disciples said, hey, would you like to meet the king that runs this kingdom? Now, this is all introduction into the second practice we're going to talk about this morning, which is operating in the power of the Holy Spirit. Because we are in the midst of a story about a river that's been flowing from the beginning all the way till the end. We'll see that in a second. And we have the option. Do we want to get into the river? Or would we rather stand on the banks and scoff at the silliness or the theological um, highness of where we are. And Ezekiel sets the example. He says, look, I, I got into the river. I got into the midst of a move of God. And it's with that that Jesus stands up and says, rivers of living water will flow through anyone who submits, who gives their life to this. So when we talk about operating in the power of the Spirit, what we see in Acts 14 and all throughout the book of Acts is actually the, the miracles, the, the supernatural are just a way often to confirm the message that we talked about last week. The first practice is preaching the gospel. The second practice is how do we see the kingdom break through in the supernatural? There's all kinds of really good um, like theological quotes or verses that we could cite. Um, but whenever we talk about the supernatural, I love to talk about a guy named John Wimber, who is incredibly simple. And he calls this doing the stuff. Just doing the stuff that Jesus did. He says uh, we can have good theology and we should have good theology and we should believe correctly. But at the end of the day, we just got to do the stuff. So we're going to talk about what it looks like to do this stuff. And there's all kinds of ways to see the kingdom break in. We're going to talk about three really practically today of how can we leave here and go to Finley Market or to our neighborhoods or our workplaces. And how can we start to do the stuff to see the kingdom come so that we can introduce them to the king. First one is, um, well, first of all, this is all because we have authority, Right. The only reason we can operate in this is because we have delegated influence. Jesus gave us authority, and he says, you can now go and do the same thing. So the first one is encouragement. This might not sound supernatural, and in some ways, it's pretty simple. It is, of the three that I'm going to talk about, encouragement, healing, and prophetic words, it is probably the, the lowest barrier to entry. All of us have probably, I hope, encouraged someone at some point. And yet, this is incredibly effective in your everyday life. You'll be surprised how this small practice can start to yield unbelievable benefits to introducing people to your king. Um, this is great, and this is going to sound unspiritual, but you, the great thing about encouragement is you don't have to even pray about it. The same way you don't have to pray about if you should pay your electric bill. Like, you're supposed to do this. We're supposed to encourage God's kids. So we don't have to walk into a room and say, God, do you want me to encourage anyone today? What you can walk into a room and say is, Lord, how? How am I supposed to encourage your children today? So the simple thing, I mean, how do we encourage people? I'm just going to assume to some degree we know, or you felt good encouragement, just mimic that. 
but I wrote down a couple things. Um, don't be in a rush with the barista. I'm always in a rush. Don't be in a rush, or your server, or whoever. Um, if you think a compliment, give that compliment. Don't let any compliment stay in your head. Compliments, I mean, people love to talk about themselves. You can, if you think it, you can say it. Don't hit on somebody, but... <laughs> or do, I don't know. People want to hear how nice they look or about their shoes or the, the kindness in what they just did. People love to talk about themselves. Give a compliment and see what doors open. We don't come in with an agenda of like, okay, now I've got to tell you about Jesus. And they might be curious. It might open up a door to invite them into your life, into your house group. We want to live missionally. The first one is encourage people. The second one is healing. In Acts 3, right after Acts 2, Peter and John are walking to the temple and they see a man that's never been able to walk. And they tell him that famous line. They say, look, we don't have silver or gold. I know that's what you're looking for. But what we do have, we give to you. In the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. And this man disobeys. He stands up and he starts to run. A man that's never been able to walk. And he starts to jump. And then it says, I don't know if you've caught this part of the story. The man ended up clinging to Peter. And Peter did what also happened in Acts 14. He let the miracle confirm the message. And he starts to preach to everyone around the kingdom of God has broken into this moment. Would you like to meet the king? The miracle confirms the message. We want to be people that pray for healing. We don't have to make this incredibly spiritual. You see someone walking around in a boot or a cast, you can pray for them. It doesn't have to be some hyper-spiritual moment. We want to pray for healing because if we pray for healing, if you pray just in Jesus' name, we ask for all pain to leave. It can be really short, pithy prayers. Jesus said he wasn't impressed with our many words when we pray. But if you pray for healing, I promise you will see people healed. And if you don't pray for healing, chances are you probably won't see people healed. But if you do pray for healing, you probably also won't see people healed at times. And we've got to get comfortable with the uncomfortable. But we want to pray for healing because in that Acts 3 story... The message was received because a miracle was experienced. And oftentimes miracles, like the, the making whole of a body, can lead to the proclamation of the greatest message that's ever been preached. John Wimber again says, I'd rather lay hands on a hundred people and have only one healed than lay hands on nobody and have nobody healed. We just got to do the stuff. We want to be a church that does the stuff. We want to be a church... That, and here's, I'm just going to throw out this rule. What if we're just a church that prays now, not later, or not just later? What if when we see someone or we hear someone talking about the pain in their body or the thing that's going on at home or the difficulty in their marriage, what if instead of being a people that said, we will pray for you, we stop what we're doing and we said, we will pray for you now? Let's just make a simple operating system. We're a church. We're a group of people that prays now. On the side of the street, you'll be surprised how few people are interested in coming to your church and how many people are interested in receiving prayer. People rarely turn down prayer, especially if they think there's a chance that maybe the God of the universe might break in and heal them. Number three is a prophetic word. That the key to this one, of course, is hearing God's voice. We want to be people that um, operate in the prophetic. In 1 Corinthians, it's called um, maybe a word of knowledge. Um, we can use whatever language we want, but it's when God speaks to you 
on behalf of somebody else. Now, the key is, of course, hearing God's voice. And we talk a lot about hearing God's voice in this church. Um, and it's not because we're like a charismatic church. It's because we're a Christian church. Like, this is not a charismatic thing. Hearing God's voice is the right, it's the inheritance of any believer. And the more that we read the word, the more that we're going to know what his voice, his rhema, his spoken word sounds like. And so we read the word so that we're familiar with what his voice has already said and what his voice sounds like. But then there's those moments when we're in public with friends or with strangers that God starts to speak and we want to tune in. And we want to be people that are willing to take a step out in faith and give a prophetic word. Um, Dallas Willard, who is known more as an academic than he is a charismatic, he says this. He wrote a whole book on hearing God. I think it's called Hearing God. And um, it's not a creative either. Uh, He said the key to hearing God is friendship with him. The key to hearing God's voice is friendship with him. And so I want you to think about what you do with your close friends. What do you talk about with your close friends? And the answer is probably almost anything, because if they're close friends, I know I can talk about almost anything with my close friends, because if they're my close friends, then they're engaging and riveting, and I love to hear what they're thinking and talk about what they're talking about. And I also know that my close friends do have things that they like to talk about more than others. My close friends love to talk about what they're interested in, and so do yours. It's true of everybody. And so Willard makes this assertion, and I I really like it. He said, talk to God. If you want to hear God's voice more, talk to God about what he's already interested in. What interests God? And start to talk to him about that. And I know one thing he's interested in, probably the primary thing he's interested in, is his kingdom. And so the more you start to talk to God about his interests, namely his kids, I picture him like a 90s dad with the wallet, the pictures that come out, like, You get him started on his kids. He can't stop talking about his kids. He just loves his kids. He will tell you whatever you want to know about his kids if you just open the door and ask. And so the key to hearing God's voice, according to Willard, is friendship with him. And friends love to talk about what other friends are interested in. I have a couple stories to illustrate this. I have the advantage of knowing what we're preaching on weeks in advance. And so I can start to like practicing the thing so I really feel it. Um... We're doing this series mostly because I don't love the way that our church, but namely I, am living missionally. I could be fully transparent. So a few weeks ago, I'm like, okay, I'm preaching on miracles, words of knowledge, prophetic words. I must start doing it. So uh, every month, I try to have dinner or lunch with one of our staff members or all of our staff members. That was a weird sentence. Um, And I think it was like two Mondays ago, I was having lunch with Megan, who's our kids leader, kids city leader. And we walked into Aladdin's in OTR. And as soon as the waitress came up, I felt like the Lord said, I have something for her. I was like, okay. And, uh, and I asked, I mean, I was listening, and I didn't feel like the Lord said anything else. And so we go on, we have lunch, we're talking about Kid City and all kinds of stuff. And at the end of the meal, I was like, the Lord still hadn't told me anything. And I'm like, Lord, I'd, I'd love to know. And I even told Megan, I was kind of looking for a lifeline. <clears throat> I said, Megan, I felt like the Lord said he has something for the waitress, but I don't know what it is. And, uh, and I was hoping that maybe the Lord had said something to her that morning. She wasn't incredibly helpful. She was like, oh, that's cool. You should, you should tell her. And I'm like, I will if I knew what it was. And uh, anyway, at the very, I'm like signing the check, and the Lord gives it to me in like a moment. 
And I said, look, I forget her name, but I said, excuse me, miss, um, this is crazy, but we're followers of Jesus, and I feel like the Lord wants to say something to you, and this could be totally off. And I said, I saw a picture of a, an open wound, and it represents a, a relationship, a close relationship that you have. And I said, I saw the Lord starting to put salve and bandages on the wound, and it started to scar over, and then it started to heal. And I said, I just believe that the Lord, if there's an open wound in, an, in a close relationship, I believe the Lord's going to start to heal it. And this girl was locked in. I could tell the Lord, like, really hit her where she was. And uh, she starts to tear up, and all she can say is, thank you so much for coming. <laughs> yeah, we had the, but she's like, no, thank you so much for coming. And uh, thank you so much for coming. And she starts to well up with emotion, and I said, look, I don't know if that could be way off, and, you know, maybe just a weird guy. And she said, no, that's, that's right. The Lord, the kingdom, broke in, and we got to introduce her to the king. So good. Also, a couple days later, I am, and I'll keep this in brief, I'm in the midst of a really contentious Wordle game <laughs> with my friends. Uh, five of my friends um, are all doing Wordle. The best, whoever gets the best score gets their dinner bought for them. I don't care about that. What I care about is whoever gets sixth is going to have to do a workout in a Halloween costume that the group chooses. And so um, <laughs> a week ago, I was in sixth, and I also knew I was preaching on words of knowledge, and so I just want to let you know, I, I sat there and I said, Lord, would you give me a word for the wordle? And he didn't. And I, just, I, I know the first story is really cool, and I want to give you a full transparency of who I am. I made a guess, and it had one yellow square and four black ones, so it was terrible. Um, and then I thought, you know what, the Lord, and I know the, the Lord cares about my wordle game because he loves me. And I know he's rooting for all of us, probably me, more than the other five. But I also know when I ask him about his kids, he seems a little bit more clear and faithful to talk because he loves to talk about his kids. He loves to talk about the things he's interested in, and the Lord loves his kids so much. So you want to hear the Lord's voice more, I would encourage you, ask him what he thinks about some of the children that are in the room with you. The river keeps flowing. And uh, in Revelation 21, John has a vision. This is the second to last chapter of the whole Bible. But John has a vision, and in this vision, he um, makes this comment. I don't know if you picked up on it. It's one of my favorite passages. But he says, there's a new heaven and a new earth, and in the end, there is no longer any sea. Which sounds like a bummer. But remember, sea is chaos. And John says, look, I was there. I saw it. There's no longer any chaos. But then he tells us in the very last chapter, Revelation 22, that there is a river. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit each and every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Does that sound familiar to you? It sounds a lot like Ezekiel's vision. See, we're living in between these two images of a river. See, the river's fully there, and there's no longer any sea in Revelation 22. And we're not quite there yet, but we are in the midst of a story about a river of God's presence flowing to the dark and dead places. And here's the good news. 
just to, I mean, and we probably know this, but I want you to like make sure no shame stays on you. If you never pray for healing, if you never get a prophetic word, if you never encourage another person in your life, the river's not stopping. You can't stop this river. The river will flow. The presence of God will go to the dark and dead places, and it will bring life to those places. What you do have the option to do is what Ezekiel had the option to do. Do you want to stand on the banks and look at it and watch it bring life, or do you want to jump into the river and be a part of the move of God where the presence flows not to you but through you to the dark and dead places of OTR, of Cincinnati, and of the world? Let's be a church that gets in the river. I don't want to stand on the banks. I don't want to have good theology, or I do want to have good theology, just for the record. I don't want to just have good theology, a scoffer spirit, a critical spirit that says, oh man, that didn't work. You pray for them and they didn't get healed. I want to be in the river with you saying, wherever this thing's going, I'm going too. Because it brings, dark, it brings light to the darkest and deadest places on the earth. We're going to be a church that gets in the river. One last story. I, uh, I got to preach at one of our partner supporting churches in LA back in March. And uh, before that, I um, got to go to San Francisco with my grandpa and we drove Highway 1 along the, the bank. And I flew in a day early because there was something going on in San Francisco as a conference that I got to go to. And I stayed with Catherine's cousin, um, him and his wife. So I stayed all night with them. They're some of the best people in the world. They live in Oakland, work in San Francisco in the tech industry. And, um, and they're not, not Christians. He uh, would class, and we've talked about this, he would call himself an atheist, like nothing exists. And she's Jewish, but probably leans more intellectually towards the atheism side. And yet they are the kindest people in the world. Um, if, if I were them and my cousin or my cousin's husband started a church, I would be like, what a waste of time. And yet they're like way more interested in what we're doing here than most of my believing friends. So <laughs> for whatever that's worth. And, um, and so we, they have a two-and-a-half-year-old. We walked uh, her to school that morning before we got on the BART, the metro, into the city. And they were telling me that for the last 18 months, they've been trying for a kid, and it's not happening. They're experiencing second-round infertility, and nothing's, nothing's working. And obviously, that's something near and dear to my heart. And so we're talking about that, and then we get on the BART, the, the metro, into the city, and my stop's first, and then theirs. And like two stops from when I was supposed to get off, I got this, like, this holy pressure um, on me that I was supposed to pray for them. And um, that was going to be uncomfortable because I'm like in the middle of San Francisco with two people that don't believe in the God that I'm going to pray to. And um, I stepped out in obedience and I was like, okay, let's do this. And I kept my eyes open because it's San Francisco and laid a hand on her shoulder. And I even said, look, I'd love to, I'd love to pray for you. I know we don't even believe in the same thing, but could I just pray that that my God would do something because I believe he cares about what you're going through. And prayed a 20-second prayer in the middle of the bar, got off, breathed a sigh of relief because that was over. And um, like three months later, they said thank you. Um, three months later, Catherine's in a book club. I haven't told this story to anybody. Um, but Catherine's in a book club with her family, and I'm not in it, um, but they asked if I could jump on the call and Andrew, he's a computer data scientist, so he's pretty chill, but he said, hey, you know, we've already told everybody else, but we just wanted to let you know, Chris, that we're pregnant. And, and he tells me the due date, <clears throat> and I'm trying to do math, but I still don't really understand how babies work, and um, <laughs> I'm like, I don't know if that's when I was there or not, and he could probably tell I was trying to figure it out. 
And he said, yeah, she got, she got pregnant like a couple days after you left. And I'm like, okay, I'm like going to temper my response. I just, you know, something cordial, like praise God. As I'm like <laughs> about to explode. And, um, and then I was, I was like, man, I hope they realize. And, and Andrew said, yeah, the first thing we thought when we saw the test was that it was right after you left. And that's, that's the end of the story for now. But what's interesting about that is, um, if you've been around for a while, you know that a big part of Catherine and I's story is for five years, for 60 months, we prayed and prophesied and worshiped and laid hands, way more spiritual prayers than what they got on the bar. And yet not once did Catherine get pregnant. Esther is a miracle, but she is a miracle through a lot of prayer and some science. She's an IVF baby. Not once did Catherine ever naturally get pregnant. And it begs the question, why? <clears throat> why would a little 20-second in-passing prayer on the Bart in the middle of San Francisco breathe life into a womb when all of the interceding and fasting didn't for five years? And, uh, and I, obviously, I don't know the answer. This is way above my pay grade. But I'm guessing. I'm guessing it has something to do with his relentless agenda to bring spiritual life where there is not. I'm guessing it has his, something to do with his relentless agenda to bring sons and daughters back into relationship with him. And again, I don't know. We'll find out when we get to heaven. I'm not bitter about it. Catherine's not bitter about it. We're celebrating the miracle. But I'm, I'm guessing that it has something to do with his relentless agenda to pursue the one. And the story of Catherine's cousin and his wife is not over. Not all miracles are created equal. And I believe we saw a miracle pop up so that the greatest miracle of all will happen. Because the greatest miracle of all is salvation. And the miracle points to the message. And so we want to be a church that believes in miracles. Not for the sake of cool party tricks, but for the sake of exalting a king and lifting him high. And so um, we're just going to make a commitment as a family, as a church. The front's going to be open. Prayer's going to be available in all four corners. But let's get prayer. Let's commit to be a church that seeks after the kingdom breaking through so that we can introduce the one in front of us to the king. And let's commit to being a church that doesn't scoff on the banks of the river, but gets in the midst of the move of God and says, come Holy Spirit. What do you want to do? How can you point to Jesus today? So let's stand and worship. Thank you for listening to the sermon from our Sunday service. If we can serve you in any way, please visit our website at citychurchotr.com. If you want to be a part of what God is doing in Cincinnati, you can support us financially. Giving can also be done on our website at citychurchotr.com slash give.